Someone has said, character is doing the right thing when no one is looking. Character is doing the right thing when no one is looking. Trying to find a clear definition of what good character is can be a challenge if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're left to root around through history, to find moral teachings, to follow in examples of people that you can imitate. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, the Christian, it's a lot easier. The ideal good character in living form is Jesus Christ. Simply stated, for the follower of Jesus, the definition of good character is Christ-likeness. Doing what Jesus would do, behaving like Jesus would behave, seeing things the way Jesus would see them, reacting to things the way Jesus would react to them, imitating Jesus. That's good character. In the story that we'll be looking at today, we will see the character of Jesus displayed in vivid fashion. If character is doing the right thing when no one is looking, then Jesus has impeccable character. He will be out in the middle of nowhere without another human being anywhere in sight. He'll have the means and the opportunity to do whatever he wants, to let his passions run wild, to be as hedonistic as he wants to be, to be as selfish as he wants to be. But he chooses to do the right thing, to obey God and to put the needs of others before himself. Jesus sets for us a powerful example of character to follow. If you want to know what good character looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what a human being ought to look like, look at Jesus. Well, a quick recap of the story from Matthew chapter 3 that we looked at last time. is a new prophet in the spirit and the style of the prophet Elijah has emerged, preaching a message of repentance to the people, challenging people to turn from their sin and to make their lives ready for the coming of the Messiah. And that person's name is John the Baptist. People from all over the region are coming to John to be baptized at the Jordan River as an outward sign of their repentance and renewed dedication to God. John tells the people that one is coming after him who's so superior to himself in every way that he isn't even worthy to carry the man's sandals. John baptizes people with water, but the one coming after him will baptize people with the Holy Spirit, he says. Then, Jesus, he comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. At first, John refuses He knows he needs to be baptized by Jesus rather than Jesus being baptized by him. But Jesus explains to him that this is the way it needs to be for now. Jesus being baptized would be keeping with God's will. Jesus being baptized would be an act of identification with us. Jesus being baptized would serve as an inauguration for his public ministry. And so John agrees and he baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus is coming up out of the water at the baptism, it says that the Holy Spirit descends on him and rests on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so, the story of Jesus' ministry begins. And we turn to Matthew chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the same Holy Spirit who had descended upon Jesus at his baptism immediately sends him out into the wilderness, it says, for 40 days and tempted. The mic is dropping out. Came back. There you go. Look at that. So the Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tested by Satan. The wilderness refers to a place of desolation, an uncultivated, untamed, lonely, arid place. The words desert and wilderness are often used interchangeably in the Bible, actually. The specific geographical location in the wilderness where Jesus spent these 40 days, it isn't known, nor is it very important, really. What is much more important is what the wilderness is, what is there, what it represents. The wilderness has often been a place of testing and preparation for God's people. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert wilderness being tested and prepared by God to enter the promised land of Canaan. The wilderness is a place where many of God's servants have spent time. Moses, for example, he spent many years in the wilderness being prepared by God for the work that he would do. David spent considerable time in the wilderness being prepared by God. The prophet Elijah spent time in the wilderness being prepared by God. And now, the greatest of God's servants, his own son, Jesus Christ, is sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tried and tested. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, our initial reaction is often, why am I here? There's something wrong about this. I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be happening to me. My life is supposed to be easy, not hard. In truth, the wilderness may be the very place that the Lord wants us to be. He has work. He wants to do in our life, and sometimes the best environment for that work to be done in is the wilderness, isn't it? We're not in the wilderness because God doesn't love us. We're there because He does love us and He desires to do a good work in our life and to prepare us to do a good work in His name in the lives of others. We can learn from Jesus about how to respond to the wilderness he embraced it, knowing who had led him there, knowing there was purpose in the wilderness, knowing that it was the will of the Father that he was there. He trusted his heavenly Father while he was in the wilderness. We can be very short-sighted about our life and what the Lord is doing in us. We live in a culture that is all about ease and comfort and instant gratification. But those things rarely build lasting goodness and character in our life. We need to follow the example of Jesus, not what our foolish, shallow culture tells us. In a sense, this whole life that we're living is a wilderness for us, a time of testing and preparation. Because this is not our final destination. We need to live like Jesus in this time and place of our life. It says he was led there to be tempted by the devil. 
One of the things that is brought out many times in the story of Jesus' life, sometimes in very dramatic fashion, as we'll see when we get further along, is this reality of the spiritual realm. There's much more here than we perceive with our physical senses. There's a spiritual realm which is actually bigger than the physical world that we live in. Now, that idea that was difficult for some people to accept at one time, but this idea is a lot easier for people to accept nowadays with the multiverse that is often a plot device in shows and movies. It's easier for people to imagine that there are layers of reality that we are not immediately aware of. Jesus, more than anyone else who has ever lived, was aware of the spiritual realm. He interacted with that realm. He did battle with foes in that spiritual realm. This time of temptation in the wilderness by Satan, it's a key battle fought by Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. It's a decisive moment in the life of Jesus as our Messiah. If Satan could have overcome Jesus in this contest that's taking place out here in the wilderness, it would have been catastrophic for the whole human race. We would have not had a Savior. We would be lost forever in our sins, separated from God and without any hope beyond this life. It's difficult for us to imagine the intense pressure of the temptations that Jesus faced. It was far more than anything any of us will ever deal with. I'm reminded of the insightful observation that C.S. Lewis made about temptations and Jesus and the temptations that he faced. He wrote, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulses inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Well, let's take a look at the temptations that Jesus faced in this desert wilderness and how he dealt with them. Beginning in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation that the devil lays before Jesus is to turn the stones lying on the ground around him into bread. Remember, Jesus has been in the desert wilderness for 40 days fasting. The last words of verse 2 are, he was hungry. That is a gross understatement. I miss a couple of meals and I am ready to eat my own arm off. 
going 40 days without food is unimaginable. The first thing for us to see then is that the devil comes to Jesus and he tempts him when he is weak and vulnerable and depleted. The devil does the same thing with us. He will come when we are weak and vulnerable and depleted, both physically and emotionally. It is at those times in our life when we need to be on our guard the most. Are you feeling really lonely, rejected, uncared for? Be careful. It's at a time like that when we will be presented with forms of comfort and relationship that you know you should not be engaged in. The temptation being presented to Jesus is deeper than simply how to address his physical hunger. He's being tempted to use his own powers to address his needs rather than trusting God the Father for his well-being. Jesus responds to the devil's temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Although it is within his power to turn the stones into bread, Jesus chooses to trust God the Father instead to meet his needs because he knows real life is found in trusting God rather than in gratifying our hungers and thirsts, gratifying our needs and our wants. The natural pull inside of us is to satisfy our needs and our wants as soon as possible. As soon as we feel it, we want to satisfy it, don't we? Delayed gratification is a terrible idea for our natural self. The Lord wants us to think of Him first, seek Him first, trust Him first, desire Him first above all else in this life. He wants us to have our needs and wants met according to His will rather than being driven by our needs and our wants. The Lord wants us to put Him at the center of our life rather than letting our needs and wants take the center position in our life. We are not to live on bread alone, like it says here, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, He expressed this same idea in Matthew 6.33 this way, when he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus told his disciples once when they were worried about him not eating in John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Before moving on, I, I want us to see the irony here. The devil is tempting Jesus, the bread of life, to turn stones into bread. If Jesus had chosen to do that, he would have ceased to be the bread of life for us. He put his own needs aside for our needs. Sin is rarely a solo violation affecting only ourselves. It has a ripple effect impacting the lives of others. We need to remember that giving into temptation impacts others, others who we care about. And may that be a motivation for us to deny ourselves, to fight against the temptation, to not give into it. Well, verse 5 
It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil now comes to him, and he uses scripture in his approach this time, quoting Bible verses, actually. Uh, Beware of using a bit of Bible to justify your actions. Twisting and bending scripture to fit what we want it to say is a dangerous game. The devil tries to get Jesus to manipulate God, to force God to rescue Jesus from certain death, as promised in this scripture that he quotes. I mean, having angels swoop in and catch Jesus in midair as he leapt would be quite a show, wouldn't it? It would immediately gain Jesus tremendous notoriety. And this is part of what the devil is asking Jesus to do. Is that the way the Father intended for Jesus to be the Savior? No. He had a very different mission for Jesus. Jesus answers the temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Truly trusting God means we take a humble place before Him and do it His way. Trying to work God to get what we want, to get over on God to get what we want, is a faithless, prideful pursuit. Jesus lived a life of humble trust in God the Father to take care of Him day to day. He never tried to manipulate God the Father. He never had an ulterior motive at play, never pushed his own personal agenda with God. He lived a humble, honest, transparent life before God, and obviously we should too. The story of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane comes to mind here, and I think it helps to explain the choice that Jesus is making here in this temptation presented to him by the devil. If we flip over to Matthew chapter 26 for a moment, and let's read a bit of this story, I think it will help us to understand what's going on here and how Jesus reacts. It says, while he was still speaking, so this is the night before Jesus is crucified, he's there with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And you'll remember Judas is the traitor. And he had already snuck off to get his 30 pieces of silver and to betray Jesus and to show the authorities where he's at here in the garden. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer... Judas had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And We know from one of the other Gospels that that person was Peter, the one who used his sword, right? But look at what Jesus says in verse 52. It says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Here it is. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus could have been rescued that night easily. He says, I don't need your help, Peter. I could have 12 legions of angels. Wipe all these guys out like that. But that's not why he came. I came to suffer and die. Being arrested like this is all part of the Father's plan. And that's what I'm going to follow. The same thing when Satan says, throw yourself off, the angels will catch you. Jesus says that is indeed true. They would. But that's not what God the Father has called me to do. Flip back to Matthew chapter 4 again. We'll continue this story in verse 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil offers to give Jesus dominion over all of the kingdoms of the world. There is the obvious temptation here of possessing great power, which has corrupted many people throughout history. The famous quote from Lord Acton comes to mind that I'm sure a lot of us have heard before, where it it says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What's the price for Jesus to possess all of this power? Bow down and worship the devil. And Jesus answers the temptation by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What the devil is offering Jesus is a shortcut to what Jesus would eventually get anyway, if he will trust and obey God the Father. You remember? It says, Every knee will bow, both in earth and heaven, to Jesus. But trusting God the Father and doing it God the Father's way will involve great suffering, humiliation, and death before that glorification happens. The crucifixion will come before the glory The devil's offering Jesus instant power. He's offering him the reward without him having to pay the price. Jesus could have taken the easy way. The easy way, though, is not always the right way, is it? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus lived that scripture in dramatic fashion. 
He took the narrow road, the difficult road. We're often offered the easy way in life, a shortcut, a quick fix, the enjoyment of the fruit without the work and the discipline. But the easy way is not always the right way. And we discover later that what we thought was the easy way had a very high hidden cost attached to it. Satan makes tremendous offers, but he can't fulfill them. He is a liar. He's a deceiver. He promises gold, but gives dirt. He claims to fulfill dreams, but instead leaves us with nightmares. The bait looks good, but there is a hook hiding inside. Jesus refuses to take any shortcuts to take the easy way out. He is committed to fulfilling the will of the Father, no matter the cost. See, all three of these temptations that the devil puts before Jesus try to get Jesus to choose his own way rather than the Father's way. But in order for the Father's will to be fulfilled and our salvation to be won, Jesus must take the road of suffering and death, the road that leads to his crucifixion. There is no other way to accomplish what God the Father desires. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. In this story, the devil is the source of temptations that assault Jesus. Temptations come to us in many different forms, though, don't they? Any thinking that enters our mind that seeks to get us to act in an un-Jesus-like way is a temptation. Whether the devil is involved in the hatching of that thought or not. And we deal with it the same way, whether it is the devil or our own foolishness or a misguided friend. Jesus met each temptation with those words, it is written, it is written, it is written. He uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus chose to obey his heavenly Father rather than give in to the temptation, even when it was going to be very hard to do it, and it's going to cost him a great deal to do it. In fact, it's going to cost him his life to do it. He didn't choose the easy way. He chose the right way. He chose the way that God was calling him to walk. Jesus was out in the desert wilderness without another human being anywhere around. He had the means and the opportunity to do whatever he wanted, to let his passions run wild, to be as selfish as he wanted to be. Instead, he chose to do the right thing, to obey God and to put the needs of others before his own. Jesus sets for us a powerful example of character. If you want to know what good character looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what a human being ought to look like, look at Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Do what Jesus would do. 
And we close with 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that way out is for us to choose to trust the Father. And wait for His deliverance. I'm so grateful that Jesus did not give in, but he chose to do it the Father's way. We're here today because of it. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for your character that you did not give in. That you won our salvation for us. That you pursued the path that the Father had called you to take. A path of suffering and difficulty and death. And we are the benefactors of that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, for the salvation that you have won for us. We pray for ourselves, Lord, as we follow in your footsteps, that as we deal with temptation in our life, we pray, God, that we too would lean on your word and choose to follow and obey you and trust you, Lord rather than give in to our needs and our wants and let those things take the center position of our life. We want you to be the center. In Jesus' name, amen.